But now that I've kind of unpacked this with some people, I'm starting to suspect that I have been depressed. But I'm still trying to parse out the language of like what is, what do we all mean by this thing, this word? Mm-hmm. There's a lot to unpack still. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There is a lot to unpack about depression for sure. Well, my name is Ernestina Malero. I'm a trauma-informed educator and curriculum designer. I'm the founder of Uplift Learning, Inc., and uh, we help health and wellness professionals explore current practice issues such as trauma-informed practice, recovering from burnout, um, cultural competency, those kinds of things. Um, So, yeah, my journey into this work has been a lifelong adventure, and I'm really glad to be here to be talking about depression, because I'd say that's probably the earliest memory I have about what got me interested in the mental health world. Mm -hmm. Was that a diagnosis when you originally got, well, you got prescription medication, right? Well, you know, yeah, in my mid-20s I did, but actually, you know, there was a time in my early 20s when I started, when I realized that I was depressed, um, I had to sort of do a life timeline. And I actually couldn't really remember very much of my childhood. It was just like a blank. You took it upon yourself to do the timeline or a therapist told you yeah, to do in, it? Yeah, in therapy. Right? Oh, okay. And I literally okay. couldn't quite remember. And I could say that one of the things that really stood out for me was just looking at how, in particular, it's probably around the sixth grade or so where I really went through an incredible amount of adversity um, in terms of, like, losing a sibling and dealing with really far too much abuse and that kind of thing. And immediately after all of that happened, within a very short period of time, I, I felt suicidal. Right, so I was probably about 11, 10 or 11 at that age. And so, on some level, that sounds shocking, but as I've moved along, you know, in my experience of depression, now I can look back on it and say it makes perfect sense. Right? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. To have, um, to have when we go through adversity, um, you know, our system responds in different ways. So it can respond either with more, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic symptoms, uh, or actually just post-traumatic stress. It's not always disordered. That just depends how long it lasts. But um, just those post-traumatic stress symptoms, right, of having a very sensitive nervous system, you know, very sensitive startle response, um, being very, you know, sometimes rageful, angry, outbursts, just a lot of sensitivity uh, as one side of of what PTSD can be. Um, But then there's the other side where um, it's just too much to feel all that, and then the depression just comes in right the sadness the sometimes not not being able to feel sometimes can you know just incredible grief and sadness and just uh, can't stop with all feeling all the emotions all the time immobilization you know not losing interest in things that we used to be interested in sleep disturbances um and just this like inability to move did you experience all of those things Yes. I have experienced all those things in my life. At, at different, different times. times. At okay. different times. 
Yeah, so there was like different symptoms in in response to different events at different times? For sure. So like as a child facing a situ- situations that seemed completely insurmountable, like, you know, if we talk about the human stress response as in its most basic form, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, yeah, clearly fighting and, and, and flighting were not options. And yeah, freeze. I think there was definitely experienced freezing even at a young age, but the thing that I remember, this idea of like, well, I can't, there's not even a reason to live anymore. Like there's, I can't win. There's no way I can win or survive the level of, of extreme difficulty that I'm facing. So, um, yeah, that most, or one of the earliest memories I have of dealing with adversity was, was suicide, was an attempted suicide, right? So... So you actually attempted or you were just thinking like it was just suicidal ideation? Like it got to the point where I planned it and I had mm-hmm. a time and a day and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a very clear way to do it. Yeah. And then I, yeah. I, it, the day and time arrived and I went to do it and I couldn't go through with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't actually end up injuring myself, but like I literally was about to. And I, yeah, I just couldn't do it. You know, there's some survival instinct that overtook yeah, the yeah. other feelings, right? What it's, was that feeling at that time? Like, was it your alarm system kicking in? Like, oh no, shoot, can't, like, I can't do that. Just complete, you know, just, the, you know, the core defining, some of the core defining features of trauma are losing choice, control, and feeling helpless. Right, and so I can say that I had this profound sense of helplessness. Like no one's coming for me, no one's going to help me, no one. There's no way this is going to get better, and I can't see any other way out of this situation. Okay, but like when you chose to, or no, sorry, chose choice is a very loaded word. I don't even like that word. But when you could not go through with the plan that you'd made. Mm-hmm. What was it that kicked in at that moment or time? Or can you oh, yeah. describe? Well, interestingly enough, well, what followed right after that was, uh, you know, I, addiction. Yeah, I started with um, alcohol and then also running away. So if we look at that from the stress response, like literally I would regularly try to run away. So it's flight response. Yeah. And the addiction numbing, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. using substances to try and numb the intense pain that I was feeling at that age, which it's alarming to think of someone at age 11 trying to do those things. But Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't like, I didn't feel like there were any better options. Mm -hmm. But like that, that survival response, can Mm -hmm. you kind of like, do you know what it was that kind of kicked in at that time when you had the instinct to live, like where you couldn't follow through with, completing the plan that you made well on some level it was like this like injustice of like well you know for the people that are injuring me so badly um why should i be the one that pays the price oh okay Mm -hmm. interesting that was the feeling that you felt Mm -hmm. yeah that was part of it yeah and and i also think i think i felt 
I felt bad. Like, I imagined what it would be like for my family to find me dead or whatever. Yes. And yes. I'm like, that, that just seemed like too much. I was also concerned for my family. Okay, so two things. Mm-hmm. The first being injustice, which is the emotion of anger mm-hmm. and boundaries mm-hmm. that comes up to say, hey, don't do this to me mm-hmm. and protects you, mm-hmm. your boundary. Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. That's your anger doing its job. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, relationship, feeling for like empathy and like, oh, I do have these relationships and I feel for what those people would experience. Yeah, in particular, my in particular, my younger brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that mm-hmm. felt like I couldn't imagine. You know, he probably would have been the one that would have found me, and I think I was probably worried the most for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of everyone, and leaving him alone, or oh my gosh, as well. Yeah, yeah, in a horrible situation. Yeah, 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 for sure. So definitely feeling that, but I can I can think back to um, an earlier experience when I was in the third grade, and. Um, it's very funny how that panned out. I I was injured during um, a math class by a teacher on purpose, like very on purpose. And um, my response to that, I mean, you know, children don't have a lot of capacity, obviously, to process or make sense of what happens to them. But my response was to essentially avoid school, was to like be late all the time and like just do anything I could do not to go to school. So that, like, pretending to be sick. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, making the walk to school last an hour when it was supposed to be 10 minutes, mm-hmm. right? But then all of those behaviors just ended up me being punished. Getting in more trouble. Yeah, get, yeah being more, there was more punishment for all of that at school, at you home. You were literally just trying to literally protect yourself from... Abuse. Yeah. That is just so heartbreaking. Totally. And it was really interesting because um, when that happened in a a rural school in Portugal, and when I returned to Canada um, to school, the teachers noticed that all of a sudden I I could do math, you know, before I left and spent this time in Portugal, in this rural school in Portugal with my family or rural community. And then when I came back, I couldn't do math. Like, not at all. Like, I lost all math abilities. And the consequence of that was I ended up in special education. And so back then, this would have been like in the the 80s, definitely, you know, there was a very negative attitude towards special education. Oh, of course. Like, did you feel that mostly from your peers or from adults or from... Everybody. Everybody, right? It's like your like, parents as well? Like Yeah, well, you know, for me it was just confirmation that I that I was stupid. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm not saying that my kid attitude about special education is correct, but just given at the time, the attitudes of the time, um, for of me course. it was really like damaging to think, Well, wow, there must be something so wrong with me if yeah. I'm in special education, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, I can't necessarily defend my kid perspective, but that's just the perspective that was at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, so just generally avoiding, you know, it's this huge pattern of like avoiding anything that was like math related, right? It had a pretty, pretty big impact on my life for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But on, on depression, um, back on depression, 
yeah, there's many phases, you know, so the early, you know, specifically, sorry, specifically on depression. Yeah, probably in sixth grade was that very first major experience. And then in my 20s, I realized again, like I, I had the experience of going back. I kept a lot of journals. I started journaling probably right around when I had planned my suicide in the sixth grade. And so I had all these journals to go back through. And so in my early 20s, I started going back through all the journals through high school, wow. all the way back. And I could just see, like, I was just writing out how painful it was. And, how and that awful. was your way of expressing things? and Yeah, it was a way that I coped was, was mm-hmm. by journaling, right? But it also got me to realize that the really extreme depression that I was facing in my early 20s, which was like, you know, going to class, can't stay awake in class, sleep through most of my classes, if I even made it to class. Oh, um, like, just can't stay awake yeah just completely just so exhausted and shut down all the time um yeah in trying to find answers you know then I finally traced back I'm like oh well this started for me like when I was 10 or 11 right and then Mm. I'm being in my early 20s I'm like oh I've been depressed for a very long time and then I sought treatment and the regular treatment funny enough I had a I had a physician at the university that was just like, oh, well, you know, you should uh, go for walks at lunchtime and uh, change your diet. <laughs> Thanks, doc. Yeah, and I yeah. just I just thought she so was... this was just a medical doctor that you saw? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, was, she wasn't specializing in, like, psychiatry or mental health or anything. It was just, like, a regular GP sort of visit. Yeah, for sure. But, but I mean, what's so funny is that her advice was actually really accurate. But, <laughs> but that wasn't, you know, but but that means, and get counseling. So well, I, yeah, that's actually a better response than like, hey, here, let's pump you full of like a ton of anti or pharmaceutical medications, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. But that meant to me, like I was open to the counseling and I did that. But the rest of it, I was just completely unwilling to look at, you know, what role maybe diet was playing in my, in my depression or you know, how exercise um, could help or going for walks at sunshine and getting some more vitamin D, which we know is really an important aspect in our, in our mood. Um, And so because I wasn't willing to do that, I insisted that she give me a prescription. Oh, you wanted it. Yeah. At that time I did. I just, I just thought a pill could make it better. Right. Because pills usually made it better. Like you get a bladder infection, you take a pill, it clears up. Sure. That's our relationship with, you know, you get sick, you take a medication. That's how we think of doctors and health and all of that in Western society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely felt that way. I was like, yeah, just give me the pill. I don't super want to do all of this lifestyle change business. Fine, I'll go to counseling, whatever. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wasn't really interested in what she had to say. So, I, I yeah, I tried the pharmaceutical route. Yeah, that was uh, a long, a long time. Tried that, did that for a long time. So, did you call it depression, or did they call it depression, or how did it first? Like, when did that label come on the scene? Yeah, they called it depression. Okay, so this was the first time you even called it that. Yeah, because they said, "Oh, that's depression." Yeah, I had never. I didn't even really know what that was, and. I made it through my first year of university and then it was the summer after the first year and I was pretty sure that 
I just wasn't cut out for university, right? That, like, there was something, I wasn't smart enough, or, like, you know, my grades were really affected, obviously, but I certainly didn't put all the puzzle pieces together. If you can't really get to class, and, you know, you're sleeping through your classes, and you're so exhausted all the time, you don't have enough energy to study, like, I didn't see how all of that was impacting me as a student. I just saw that I was getting bad grades and I was a bad student. So you went to the doctor being like, hey, I'm really tired. Yeah. And that was what you identified as the problem. Yeah. I mean, it, it went a little bit further in that during the summer I had um, had a situation where, yeah, it, it really, like the exhaustion was like in my first year of university was just like really next level. Um, and then... During the summer, I had an episode where I couldn't stop crying for, like, days. For, like, days and days. Hmm. Right? And I was just really concerned. And it was at a time when there was this threat, you know. Um, <laughs> somebody very toxic went away, and I felt better, and there was a threat of them returning to my life. And then I completely just had this break, right, where I was very, yeah, I was... I mean, I certainly, I could never add up how it all worked. I just would express these intense feelings of sadness. And I actually decided that I'm like, well, I don't think I can even go to school. Like, I'm just not smart enough. And so I called up the university and I said, yeah, I think I have to quit. I have to resign. But luckily, and who were you speaking to at the university? Like, this is like the admissions desk person or, no. or someone at... In the program, like... Well, I definitely I definitely spoke to, like, the admissions people to figure out what the process was. And I had done some volunteer work in my first year where um, when new students would come, I would, like... I got trained in how to orient people to the campus. And so as students would come, I would orient them to campus services. And so the coordinator of that volunteer program, I phoned her. I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm, I told you I was going to come back for my second year and I'd volunteer again, but I'm, I'm not going to come back. And she's like, why is that? And I'm like, well, I, you know, I, I just don't think I'm smart enough. And, you know, yeah, but there's something not, not quite right with me. And she's like, no, you have to come back and we'll, we'll find there's ways to help you. We'll help you get figured. So this she out. kind of identified that you were reaching out, like you had some sort of mental health Issue. situation or something. Yeah. Well, good on her. For not just being like, oh, okay, thanks, bye. Yeah, was, she changed my life, you know? Like, like honestly, she connected me. So, on the one hand, I'd been trained what all the services on campus were as in this volunteer role, but I couldn't make the connection to use them for myself. <laughs> That's so interesting. Because you'd always just been on your own, and, like, you know, your, your inclination was not to reach out for help. Help was not something that was available to you. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, maybe. But, I mean, isn't often the case that we know, like, it's much easier to help other people with right. what they need to do than to see for us what we should be doing? Is it because counseling was for those really, like, those people with problems, those crazy people, those whatever? Like, back in those days, it was a little bit more of a stigmatized thing where... Oh, yeah, in the 90s? Mm-hmm. Where we had some, you know, like, like really over-the-top idea of what it meant to, like, need some sort of mental health support or something. 
Oh yeah, like having like, a break with reality or something. Oh, like that. I couldn't think of a worse thing that could happen to you. It was just pretty much about the worst thing that could happen to you was to like actually have a mental illness. Mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the amount of judgment and stigma and shame, mm-hmm. like a profound sense of shame. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I could say that I I really experienced that at that time, but it was because of that professional that I actually went back to school and for my second year and got connected to all the services and started doing counseling and and prescription drugs, mm-hmm. right? Like antidepressants. And yeah, it made a difference. You know, I, I learned a lot. Like, like there were services at, at Carleton university at, at the time that were really helpful and it made a difference. For so sure. these were counseling sessions you started going to? Yeah. Yeah. I started seeing one of the, the mental health therapists. On okay. Campus. And this was just something that was free for students and, Part, it, of, part of our health insurance. It was um, proper therapy where, yeah, you have, how many sessions did you have available to you? Was it like, like a limited number? It was infinite. Really? I, I can't tell you how many sessions I had. Because it, it seems like usually nowadays, like, counselor at a university usually means, like, career-type counseling where they can help you navigate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's, like, is there actual counseling services available to the students? Um, I know with uni- like I know there's... I know at a few universities for sure there are yeah mm-hmm. like at the University of Alberta there's oh, student yeah, okay. counseling center yeah so yeah there was you know they gave me the names of a few different therapists on campus and I checked them out and different modalities that they used and hmm. yeah the one the one that I ended up working with I worked with her for like at least a couple of years on a regular basis wow yeah. It was the first time I'd ever done any counseling. Was this sort of like more superficial, like, you know, like goal-oriented, solution-focused talk therapy? Or did she do like some process-oriented kind of work with you? Oh, yeah. This definitely, it was definitely wasn't just goal-oriented stuff. I mean, some of it was like, you know, safety and stabilization and like, okay, self-care, right? But that's a normal process and mm-hmm. helping people heal is focusing on stabilizing first um whereas but then as time went on we did get into you know like what is all of this grief about or mm-hmm. what all this what's the sadness about really for me mm-hmm. yeah and so that then we would do different exercises like i was i've always been into art and i've always drawn a lot so sometimes she would ask me to do drawings and I would make drawings that I would bring them to class or to the session and and talk about the drawings. So I did use art actually quite a bit to help mm. deal with, with the depression. And she'd give me different exercises like the timeline or remembering, trying to remember my life and realizing that I couldn't remember my life. Well, that was a really fascinating thing to realize that I couldn't remember my childhood. And you still can't. I can, okay. but it took a lot of work. Like, that process of trying to remember my childhood was really hard work. Like, I couldn't remember it. Hmm. Yeah. So you were blind to the things that were too vulnerable to see. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, it was just it was too, it was too painful. Like, you blocked all these things out because they were way too painful to look at. Yeah, I just didn't remember them, generally. Yeah. And then when you kind of, like, thought out, you did... Just just remember them, or you had to, like, try to remember, or what was the well, process of Yeah, I mean, she, she, you know, like, so she got me to do this timeline, and I'm like, well, you know, 
uh, I lived here and then I lived there. I could like say the high level things of like say where I lived or like right. different houses. But when it came down to like actually writing down more specific events or like, I don't know, family celebrations or there's just like a huge gaps, things that I just couldn't really remember. And so it's like, you know, round one, uh, I remember two things. Okay keep going right okay okay and then then just okay try again just reflect on it some more then over a period of weeks just fulfilling in the timeline i think it was actually months before i really remembered the whole timeline Hmm. everything and then when you start to remember traumatic events you know i don't think that we talked about things as being traumatic back then there were clearly very traumatic events right and but that wasn't the word that people used back then i don't i don't recall it being used no, not in the 90s. Yeah. But, um, you know, definitely there would be, like, exploration and, you know, things that were a, a safe space for me to express my emotions and talk about things. But I wouldn't quite say it was, like, trauma therapy, mm. per se, you know, or anything like that. Yeah, it was more just, like, expressive talk therapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, just really in the counseling realm. I still found it helpful, but eventually I did quit because I was, like, I didn't know... I didn't know about what else it could do for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like it just was a course of therapy and it lasted two or three years and then it seemed done. You know, there was a time where I was kind of more functional, doing overall doing better and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm okay, I guess. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So with your crying and sadness and that, like, because I'm just trying to figure out the... Like, how people's experiences align with what I understand theoretically. Mm-hmm. And so, Gordon talks about how, like, the, the little bits he said about depression. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things is he's, he said, you know, basically that idea that emotions follow a sine wave. And, um, I mean, Carla McLaren says the same thing, right? Like, once you feel an emotion fully, then content is on the other side of that right Mm -hmm. that's actually said by a lot of people Mm -hmm. like you see it in inside out and everything Mm -hmm. you express like you see something is like you know joy and sadness or like william blake woe and joy or woven fine Mm -hmm. you know on the other side of um if you feel something fully Mm -hmm. you come out the other side and you're content naturally and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing like with the sadness like like, what was it about this well of sadness? Like, could you get to the, like, was it just like you couldn't quite get to the bottom to be able to come out the other side? Or, like, what is that about or like? Yeah, I, I had no idea what the bottom was. And I, and I didn't know how painful the things were that I experienced. Right? So eventually, once I knew the timeline of my childhood, like, okay, there's all these events, but I don't have any feelings about them so much. You know, like, like the, I think the things that I was processing were more like more immediate issues, like immediate issues with my family. And obviously we did some processing about just even building the timeline was part of making sense of, of the past. But I don't remember at that time doing a ton of very specific work on different events. Those are things I tackled in future and later on in life, like in other rounds of therapy. Yeah. Right. So, like, when you were feeling this, like, bout of sadness where you cried and cried and cried for three days, like, I can't quite picture it. Like, are you talking, like, nonstop, 
crying episodes. Yeah, just like all day. Just like a non-stop. Like crying, crying, Wake crying, up crying, crying, cry all day. Was it like panic crying? Like there's an alarm quality to it? Like, oh no, oh no. Yeah, I mean, it was so bad. I, like I, I mean, I also, I kind of lost the ability to speak during that time. I don't think it was just a couple days. Like I think it was a lot longer than that. So yeah. you would just like hold up in the house. No, yeah. you didn't leave. Didn't leave my room. Just couldn't stop crying. Was it like alarm based? Like, like fear based? Yeah, in part because like, you know, there's this like threat returning to my life. Yeah. Right? Somebody that I was terrified of that had hurt me in the past. So, um, partially, I just don't think any of it was clear. I think it was just so confusing. It's like hard to even remember. At it's this hard point. to make. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. hard to make sense of like in terms of like that much crying, um, you know, being nearly losing the ability to speak. You know, like like having like my mom ask me questions and like, okay, what's this about? How can I help you? And just being really unable to even express, you know, like what I needed or what I wanted, and like I just couldn't stop crying. Just like. I've rarely experienced, I don't think I've ever experienced anything quite like it since. So yeah. did you, did you get to the bottom of that and like eventually like, cause you know, like when you, that's the whole thing. I, I mean, theoretically, this is what I'm trying to do is figure out where the theory, where the rubber hits the road yeah. is like, so theoretically you cry, you go to the bottom, you come out the other side. And then yeah. maybe there's another wave of like with grief, right? Yeah. So many layers, so many waves, wave after wave. But the idea is that as with every wave, you go down to the bottom, reach the, you can't, there's only so much crying you can do before it ultimately t- turns around. And then there's maybe another wave after wave, but mm. these are healing. Like that is the mechanism of adaptation. Mm-hmm. Unless you don't reach the bottom. Like that's the one thing that Gordon says is he says, Depression is like when you're kind of stuck down near the bottom, you're maybe trying to scramble back up, but you're not going to the adaptive oh, place. Yeah. yeah, no, I never got to the bottom. Like, I think maybe 10 years later, I started to get to the bottom. Mm-hmm. But my way to the bottom was just like a ton more adversity. Like, that wasn't my bottom. It felt like the like the rock bottom. Like, what could be worse than, you know, crying for days or I think it was more like weeks you know, it was so bad that you know, my mom was like, you have to go see a doctor. We have to take you to the hospital. We have to do something about this. And I, yeah, eventually I, I, I did go to the hospital and they medicated me. That's how I think I actually originally got the diagnosis, actually, and now I'm thinking back on it. But that wasn't my bottom, right? But I don't mean like a whole like rock bottom of life. I just mean like where you where the crying does its job and helps you release what isn't working and then you feel better. Well, I felt better enough, you know, well, the choice after that experience was to try and quit school, but then I got some support, right? Mm-hmm. Where I had that that volunteer coordinator at the university saying, no, come back, we can help you. And I got a ton of support in terms of like, you know, like studying skills and like counseling and you know like a lot of support that kind of got me through and then also in terms of like understanding this was very difficult to understand myself as someone that for a time had a disability 
right? And then accessing the right kind of support so that I could get through school with the disability of depression. Hmm. Right? I don't see myself as disabled. But it's very hard. It's very hard to tune in to that language. Like, it's an invisible disability. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. hard for me to understand it as a disability. Like, I know it is. I know it's intensely impairing. I've experienced mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But it's still very hard for me to... Then it was, and still now, it's hard for me to think of myself as disabled. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting yeah label. Yeah, because it still holds a very negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were crying and crying and crying. It wasn't the type of crying that like was adaptive or made you feel any better. It was so. just like this sort of like endless spiral. Yeah. There was some alarm to it, like, like panic crying almost. Yeah. And yeah. then you got medicated. Yeah. And then that stopped it. Yeah. I mean, it was a way to cope, right? It's like, if I'm not crying all the time, well, maybe I can be more functional. So Did like, it like numb you out? I mean, I ended up being, I ended up taking antidepressants for like seven years, which was a really huge journey of like, you know, constantly trying different doses and like changing medications. There's a lot of research about the ineffectiveness of pharmaceutical treatments for depression and how they can impact your depression negatively. Um, and yeah, your brain doesn't sit idly by and just like accept a dose of something. It tries to kind of cope and find its own equilibrium where, you know, you constantly have to either increase the dosage or change it up or... Yeah, for it mm-hmm. to respond. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that was its own journey. Um, but the side effects of, of medication was just like a lot of numbness and a lot of like an inability to feel. And that, that just felt so strange. I'm like, I can't feel anything. And mm-hmm. so I knew that was, there's something so unnatural about that. So eventually I, I did get off the, the prescriptions. But I, but I mean, for me to find my real bottom, there's just so much more adversity that came my way as an adult. And that's how I started to find actually trauma therapy. And then it was very interesting that as I started to do, um, instead of just regular counseling, to do sp- trauma-specific therapy, that as I did trauma-specific therapy, depressive symptoms kept dissipating and leaving. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so my my best results started to come from trauma therapy yeah, right? but yeah. there was a huge gap from my first round of therapy till trauma therapy was easily maybe five years or so yeah it was a big chunk of time yeah. I mean these things were very unknown at the time I started doing trauma therapy in like EMDR in 2002 around there oh, after, wow, after okay. really major I was yeah after a very major um attack (laughs) yeah so again depressive symptoms couldn't function at work Mm -hmm. you know couldn't get out of bed so yeah massive adversity and then this complete shutdown yeah 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 so that's like a real pattern that i've seen and then the miracle well slash you know the the post the post-traumatic stress symptoms of that were so severe that i couldn't really leave my house so like trying to walk down the street like I didn't realize how affected I was, like my nervous system was, by being attacked. And I would be like, I'm fine. And I would try and do something like groceries or whatever, walk down the street. I have very clear memory of walking down the street and somebody walking up behind me during, like, busy street people. And I would just jump and scream. Yeah, just 
incredibly sensitive startle response mm-hmm. to um, to that kind of a situation. So did you have like the alarm system stuff going on at the same time as the depressive shutdown? Yeah, all systems. Yeah, was it like a pendulum swing between those two at any given point? Because the alarm is sort of like the like like. Almost like a gas pedal, like a revving of like ah, like oh no, pay yeah. attention, caution, like that's the that's and then the, the depression is just like the shutdown, close out, sleep, shut, yeah, yeah, yeah. It came after, so in the immediate days after the trauma of being attacked, um, it was like I'm fine. It, like I just was like I just this massive feeling of numbness of like I can't feel anything. Well, if I can't feel anything... Like emotionally, physically, just everything. Just feel anything. Nothing. Yeah, like really upset on the day of, and then the next day, I'm like, okay, should I go to work the next Didn't day? Didn't feel anything, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, should I go to work? I'm like, I think I'm okay. I can't feel anything. Should I go to work or not go to work? I'm not sure, right? And um, I think I waited a few days, maybe, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I can't feel anything. I must be fine. And then going to work and just being, like... <laughs> like, dissociated, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair way to say it. But then going to work and just being completely overwhelmed and overstimulated, completely unable to respond, to deal with the demands of work. That's so interesting you say overstimulated, because if you're numbed out and, and tuned out and kind of sh- shut down, it's like your your nervous system is shutting out all the stimulation. Well, at first, it, at first, this it was, is, these are the things I'm trying to wrap my head yeah. around. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so I guess this is what I want to say is that mm-hmm. like, and like, you know, so it's like numb. So there's this immediate sense of numbness and being like, I can't feel anything. So maybe I'm okay. And then trying to go to work, mm-hmm. but the, 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 you know, people talking to me, people walking up behind me mm-hmm, and me like mm-hmm. jumping and screaming, like yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. that's not going to fly at work, yeah. you know, jumping and screaming when someone walks up behind you to talk to you. <laughs> Like, it doesn't work, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not going to work. So, Whatever job you're in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so on the one hand, feeling numb, and on the other hand, having these very sensitive, like, startle response and this complete feeling of overwhelm, you know, like, if we right. think of, like, the, the window of tolerance or whatever, of, like, how mm-hmm. much stimulus I could process. Yeah. So I feel numb. And if I'm feeling numb, I'm like, I think I'm okay. But then you add more stimulus and it's like, yes. right? So the window of tolerance was so tiny. Like what could come in was so minuscule. That does make sense. Like your your system was trying to numb out to some degree. And what bit of ability it had to kind of take in stimuli, it was just like, oh, complete overwhelm. Yeah. Hypersensitivity for the stimuli that was coming in. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, but then I also remember then realizing, like, oh, I think I'm not okay. And then I'm like, I, maybe I should get counseling. And by some miracle, I found, you know, like the miracle of finding an EMDR therapist in 2002, three ish in Regina, Saskatchewan, like a small prayer city. Oh, it was wow. just real pure luck. What type of work were you doing at that time where you were like, you went to work and you were jumpy and... Oh, yeah, I was uh, I was uh, doing instructional design, so I was working in, a, oh, okay. in an office in setting. In an office, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and so, but then after, you know, after that first attempt to go back to work and just being like, oh, I 
can't describe how strange it felt to be at work. Like, it felt completely wrong. I couldn't connect to anyone. Everything was confusing and overwhelming. And, wow. you know, then just going to see my doctor, getting counseling. And then after that, I probably spent... turn a light on because sure. it's really dark. Mm-hmm. But sorry. Go on. No worries. After that... Um, then I probably spent a couple weeks at home. You know, like the doctor was like, just take a month. And they wrote you kind of like a a letter yeah. excusing you for a medical absence or something. Yeah. And did people judge you for that? or? Well, I got the medical leave of absence probably within a few days of being attacked or so. And then I'm like, okay, so, you know, it was sexual assault. So I got in touch with the sexual assault center in my city. And, of course... This is very interesting because, like, all of the, all of the materials that they give you about, like, if you've been assaulted, you might be experiencing these things, right? And so, naively, like, so naive, I took the information to work to say, hey, you know, I've been the victim of a crime and mm-hmm. I'm experiencing these things. So here's some information so you might understand what I'm going through. Okay. But, like... I don't know what happened. I don't know if I just communicated poorly, but it was really not well received. And By one person or a bunch of people? or I think what was so weird was that I was so messed up, but I think I was telling people that I'm okay, I'll be back in no time. You know, like there's oh, this complete okay. denial and misunderstanding of how affected I was. Which if they were trauma-informed and understood, they would be like, no 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 you're you're actually not okay you're like numb you're in shock you know you're yeah. you're not okay mm-hmm. go home <laughs> mm-hmm. totally all of those things so i think i think that there would have been so much incongruence of me giving them this information about you know what i'm experiencing and then at the same time saying it's okay mm-hmm. that i'm okay and i'll be fine because other people experience these symptoms on the yeah. pamphlet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I may or may not be experiencing these things, but, you know, it gives advice for how to deal with someone who's been assaulted and that kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, this might be handy if they understand these things. They didn't feel for you. Like, they didn't say, holy crap, like, this happened. Are you okay? Whoa. Um, I think it was just super awkward. I just remember it being incredibly awkward. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. What do you say to someone who's telling you they've been assaulted? I mean, I feel like I would know what to do these days, but back then, right, in the early aughts, it was um, a pretty pretty strange thing. So, yeah, and I think once I got home, you know, after doing this strange thing of trying to give people at work information about what I'd gone through, then I remember being in bed a lot and sleeping a lot. And my boyfriend at the time was like, well, like, when are you going back to work? You should get back to work. Right? And he was very concerned about me getting back to work. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I, I he mean, didn't quite get the gravity of how this might impact you. What did he think would happen? Like, hey, this happened. So what? Focus on the future. Like, what was his mentality of... Oh, we were so young. I mean, what was his mentality? Just ignore it. Kind of. You know, like, okay, you went through a thing. Okay, you've been home for a few days. Obviously, you should take some days. But you should be fine now. Right. A couple days and you're good. Yeah, you should be better now. (laughs) Right? It was like that. Bounce back. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you should be better now. Was sort of the idea. And he wasn't 
I don't think he wasn't trying to be mean or anything. He just didn't understand. And yeah, yeah. I didn't know how to tell him. I'm like, I feel really messed up, you know? And I'm just like, I think I need to stay home. I, I don't know about this. I still, because like at home I would look okay. In a sense, I'd kind of look okay at home. Because you were in this very safe, calm environment where there was no stimuli, nothing going on. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you put me at work, and, th- and then so this is what happened. Then I would try and go back to work and be like, whoa, I can't deal with this. Then I'd go home, and then I'd be home for a while, and then I'd go back to work. This like made everyone at work very furious, right? And it just caused so many problems for me at work. Like, countless problems at work. Yeah. So um, they didn't quite... They weren't very trauma-informed. They were just kind of like, you say you're coming back, you you come back, then you go off again. Like, did they think, they think you were faking it, or did they... I don't think they thought I was faking it. You know, like, there was police reports, and, you know, I, I did try and report it. I did report it to the police. Um, Not faking that the incident happened, but faking that you have these ongoing symptoms. Like, you know, the whole, like, oh, you call in sick, you're faking it, yeah. sort of mentality of the industrialized complex I guess you could say yeah I I recall I just remember their frustration in particular my manager right my manager was very frustrated about it and I mean on some level I should have just known you know what I need three months off I'll be back in three months that would have been the more correct response to do but, but you wouldn't know if you hadn't been through it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then the shame, right? The yeah. shame of like, I'm like, if I'm not at work, like I am not physically injured. Like nothing is broken. I should be able to work, right? Like I should be fine. And like myself, I didn't understand what was happening to me. The people around me didn't understand, like, what was wrong with me and, like, why wasn't I back at work? And just, like, for me, you know, avoiding the shame, like, somehow being at work, not being at work was shameful. Yes. Well, that's our whole entire programming in this society. Get to work. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Make something of yourself. Make yourself, make yourself useful. Yeah. Did the sexual assault center or anything, like, provide any sort of information that could have filled you in on this? Like, hey, this is what to expect. This is this is trauma. This is the gravity of the situation. This is... <laughs> <laughs> See, but at the time... So, something I've been reflecting on recently, that um, they just give a list of symptoms, but nobody calls it trauma. So, if you look up, you know, mm. even... It was just maybe... Maybe five years ago or so, I was experiencing extreme workplace bullying. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I think this is bullying. I'm not sure. And then I went and looked up information on bullying. It's like, you might you might be experiencing bullying if you have these symptoms. Trauma symptoms. But they never call it trauma. Right. They don't call it trauma. So the sexual... The T word is scary. The sexual assault center did not call it trauma. They did not say, they said you should get counseling. They didn't say what kind of counseling you should get. Hmm. Same, same on, on the workplace bullying business. Only in the form of a pamphlet, not like counseling or, you know, they didn't provide the counseling. It was just more like, here's some information in a pamphlet. Yeah. It's like, it's like, well, you might feel depressed. You might have sleep problems, you know, and it's like, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. But it's very hard to connect like their long list of symptoms to what you're experiencing when. Like, yes, you might be experiencing those things, but it's too surface level. Mm-hmm. Like, when you, when we start to understand more about the nervous system, 
the symptoms make way more sense, mm-hmm. right? And it's very hard to just read a list of symptoms in my experience and then just be like, that's me, I get it. I don't know, there's just complete disconnect from my experience, the reality of my experience, and, you know, maybe some warning on a pamphlet about, like, you might be experiencing these things, and it's like, yes, and... I, I, like, I don't even understand my own experience. It's just so confusing. So, yeah, and, and the response from work ultimately, and I think this is what happens a lot at work, is that people are then experiencing trauma, which affects their workplace performance, and then punishment, right? Yeah. Which reflects my experience also as a child. Yes. Right? <laughs> when you have a change in capacity to function, it's always the question for a long time has always been what's wrong with you, mm-hmm. right? They don't mm-hmm. ask that question of what's happened to you. And then you're punished. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So for me, it ended up, they don't care what happened to you. It's about what you can do for them. Yeah. Why are you behind in your work? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was all about my productivity, which is unfortunate because if like they would take up the bigger picture of like, Hey, you're this valuable human and you've been, you know, valuable all this time and you're, you're temporarily going through this experience and we feel for you because you're an important part of this community. Mm -hmm. And like, this is bound to happen to all people at some point. Like we all go through things, whether it's losing someone and it's grief or something happens to you and you have a, you know, perfectly normal response to that trauma or whatever, you know, like that big picture of this is part of life Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, we want you an employee full on all the time, 24 Mm seven, completely not realistic. Yeah. It's very unrealistic. Yeah. But in, in the end, like with, with that particular manager, he, um, he started like really kind of critiquing my work on very minute levels, like micromanaging you sort of. Yeah. Like red pen and, printing out my emails and circling typos in my emails. And, oh my God. Yeah. Wow. And, and it came to a real, it came, all came to a head in a meeting where in a, in a boardroom with no windows, with the door closed, he started <gasps> oh. like, he started pounding on the table and like, like leaning across the table towards me and me oh my recoiling God. back as he's pounding the table, red faced. This is after an assault. Oh, right? so triggering. To yeah. which, um, you know, my response was to run away and have a panic attack. I ran all the way across campus to the union office. Did you have to run past him to get out the door? Well, he's on one side of the table. I'm on the other side of the table, and the door's sort of in the middle okay, of, like, the okay. table. So, so you just, bolted. Yeah, I just ran. I just ran, ran all the way across campus and couldn't stop crying, couldn't even talk by the time I got to the union office. and Like, took, no thought, just bolt, like, just yeah. pure instinct. Yeah, I mean, it was mm-hmm. terrifying. I just mm-hmm. didn't know if he was going to attack me, you know? I don't think he would have, but it was very inappropriate. But you didn't have... It was not about thinking. Like, it was about... I've been through this sort of thing, so I know that this is possible. It's very possible. Mm-hmm. In my reality, very yeah. possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so with him, we ended up going through um, a mediation process in the end. You and had a union at that time. Yeah, I did. I was really mm-hmm. lucky. Mm-hmm. And so the union set up, like, I could have filed a grievance against him, which would have been the better thing to do, but probably. In hindsight? Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, we did mediation, and he just gaslighted me. He just, like, it, 
the whole way through. Yeah. Well, mediation is funny because mediation is for two people who wholeheartedly want to come together to understand each other. Mm -hmm. Mediation is not for people who happen to have a conflict or there's a power imbalance or, you know, something like that. Like, if he didn't want to figure it out with you, then mediation is inappropriate. It was so inappropriate to, like, after an assault, to be sitting in mediation with someone who has violated me. Yeah. You know? He's violated you and he's got power over you. It was terrifying. That's not mediation. It was terrifying. And I still had to work with him in the same office. I don't know how I did it, actually. So you went through the mediation process and it what didn't work? Um, what worked in that he got promoted. (laughs) So he gaslit you and what happened? Did you just sort of absorb it or? Yeah. I mean, uh, eventually he was just like, well, I'm sorry that you, you know, I'm sorry. Like very stingily, he apologized saying, I'm sorry that you, um, felt that this happened, but he never admitted that anything happened. Right, so it was just—it was just like and that was good enough for the mediator. Like, okay, check, yeah, fact work. Yeah, yeah, it was—it was really awful, but it's so reflective of like the pattern that people deal with who've been victimized, mm-hmm. right? Like, oftentimes it's so scary to even say anything because if you do say something, chances are people aren't going to believe you. Exactly. Right? They don't believe you. They, they gaslight like, you. They really believe you. Yeah. No, it's like, are you sure? Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Why were you, what were you wearing that night? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right? And even the, the experience of going, working with the police at that time. And what was really strange about working with the police, though, was that they said, they said, well, you shouldn't, you know, like I walked home through a residential neighborhood filled with houses. Um, I'm like, I didn't. Yeah, I, I probably should have thought that through a bit more, but they're like, well, you shouldn't walk home alone. I'm like, it was a residential neighborhood with, you know, like there are lots of people in their houses anyways. I'm like, I didn't think it was that dangerous. And you shouldn't walk. shouldn't walk. Yeah. You shouldn't be out there walking. Yeah, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be out there walking. But what was really yeah, interesting is that yeah. they said um, mm-hmm. that that other women had been attacked and that they didn't. They didn't. I'm like, we should notify the public about this. And they said, well, we don't want to alarm people. Well, <laughs> we don't want to alarm people to actual threats. <laughs> I'm for, Thank I'm, you for that. Yeah, very, very, very courteous. Yeah, I know. It was incredible. It's really incredible. But the, the issue at work eventually, so that's kind of how it got resolved. Like, we finished mediation, and it was horrible, you know, especially being in an environment where my colleagues all get along with him. Right? So this is the horrible thing about being someone who's assaulted or violated in some way. Of course, I have to remember that there was a literal assault right, that happened on, the st- you know, on, an, on a particular evening. And then there's what happened at work with my boss. Mm-hmm. Like his rage about my inconsistent performance. Right, Those are two separate events, so I can't blend them. Um, but... I mean, for someone to be pounding a table, red-faced, leering ever closer to you, like, that's very threatening. That's just so inappropriate at work. I can't even fathom that someone would do that in a professional setting. Yeah. I mean, that's violating to me. I've seen people do really awful things that are like, what? I can't picture myself ever doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But to me, that was incredibly violating. So to be in a space where now I've been violated at work, too... And 
everyone at work is like still friends with the person who injured me and carrying on. It's just something so injurious. Well, they want to be in the safe zone. Like they need to be good with this person. He was the person who had power over well, everyone yeah, else. Like yeah, the he's supervisor, the, he's the right? Boss. Yeah. Well, of course they want to be in his good books. Yeah. So if he's willing to, you know, have them in his good books, then why wouldn't they ride it? This is their own livelihood, right? I know. But, like, there's something so wrong about that culture. Oh, yeah. You know, of, like, when, like, if someone that I care about has been violated, then I don't want to be the one who's silent and, like, cavorting with the perpetrator i don't know eugenia i like the, this is a very interesting issue i'm actually in the midst of like asking these questions right now mm-hmm. yeah and like yeah. there was a, a recent spiritual bullying experience that i went through and or spiritual violation spiritual abuse i guess you know in, in the last couple of years and it's that same thing of like Some people, you know, have had the experience of people really hearing me and really believing me. You're one of them. Mm-hmm. And, but then it's also like, but it's also painful to like be neutral, to be like, oh, it's okay if you're still friends with the person that injured me. And, mm-hmm. and there's this like wanting for people to like sort of stick up for me. Yes, and, I know, yeah. And, And so in that workplace situation, they didn't, right? It was just me with, like, people that are pretending to be neutral or are neutral or don't care. I don't know. And then the abuser. Exactly. Abusive person. And it's very hard. I I, I don't really have words for this, but anyways. (laughs) I've been on both sides of that Mm -hmm. equation, too, at work. Mm -hmm. I've been the one who was bullied. Mm -hmm. And... Feeling like, why doesn't anybody else speak out? Mm-hmm. And I went to HR, mm-hmm. and they didn't have any idea how to deal with it. Said, oh, there's a conflict. Um, do you need some help with conflict resolution skills? Do you need some training on how to like use appropriate listening? <laughs> I'm like, I'm being bullied. Yeah. I already know how to listen. Yeah. You know, it's not a conflict. It's bullying. You know, yeah. it's different. And then they said to me, well, you're the only person who's reported this. Hmm. So in essence, like, we don't know if it's true. Mm-hmm. Because if it were true, wouldn't there be other people reporting it? People are terrified. And then I said, like, to the other people, well, could you consider reporting this? Mm-hmm. Because it... You know, if we all speak out rather than just talking to each other about it, mm-hmm. then maybe we could get HR involved and make some change about it. And they were a little bit in the safe zone mm-hmm. around, like, not always being the primary target for the most part. And so it was, like, easier for them to be in that safe zone. And, like, now I'm kind of in the opposite situation where, like, I'm in the cool zone. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing some other things, dynamics, power dynamics and stuff, mm-hmm. and going, what is a person supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Like, we tell children who <laughs> barely have integrative functioning to go and, like, stand up 
be like not to be a bystander yeah, and whatever. Bystander, yeah. And yet like we can't even remotely do this. I had this conversation actually with someone who's like quite mature and I I think has a fair amount of wisdom and stuff and I was like, "Well, what, you know, I don't there's no straight answer for it, but It's interesting how we there isn't like the openness in these cultures to talk about things that clearly affect everyone cuz team dynamics and relationship dynamics affect everyone. Mm-hmm. Um and you know it's supposed to be none of our business what someone else's performance is or whatever. Hmm. If their performance is in question um and they're not actually supposed to be talking about certain things to other people because it's like private matters and this and that but of course people are going to talk to other people yeah because they have support they need support systems and you know it would be to ignore that fact would just be a delusion that people aren't going to reach out to other people for support and tell them what's going on and and then of course it affects those other people who are receiving this information and what are they supposed to do, but they don't yes. have a right to talk about it because it's not <laughs> theirs to talk about and they're disclosing yeah. information that they shouldn't know and then yeah. it's like a shrouded secrecy. Right. You know, and... I really appreciate you saying that. Kind yeah. of like gossip almost. and But it's not gossip, it's real. Like there's these real dynamics that are going on and mm-hmm. and like I don't want to be just a bystander that doesn't say something. Mm-hmm. But I also don't have the the right to say something about something I'm not even supposed to know about because it's not information I'm involved in. Mm-hmm. But let's Ooh. say someone's like a coworker is coming to me for support because mm-hmm. they're experiencing something in the workplace. Yeah, they're not really supposed to know about it. Like what to do? Yeah. Well, I got I got that covered. You want to know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I have uh, I have had to deal with this so many times at work. Anyways, eventually I you know I did get better at dealing with these situations because I've faced workplace bullying and the trauma that comes along with it so many times. But eventually I got really good at documenting. Okay, so one documenting. So I advise people if they're having a difficult time, you document totally. everything, and I have a pretty good idea of what to do. Like I have a lot of resources and a lot of skills to deal with those the experience of like depressive symptoms of feeling exhausted and feeling like I need a lot of rest and I'm like not afraid I'm trying not to stigmatize it and just give myself the space to heal from the recent adversity that's come up yeah Yeah, so what do you do you make room for the you're like okay my system is trying to you know press down upon yeah or shut down kind of like have this coping mechanism to just just tune out, shut down, sleep. Yeah. Do you just, like, indulge that and give that room? Like, okay, I'm going to go so deeply into this rest and come out the other side. Or, like, do you try to kind of, like, put something else on the other side of the scale to try to balance it out? Hmm. Like, I, like, I shouldn't indulge that? Hmm. Like, is there wisdom in that? Like, you must rest. Okay, get all the rest satiated coming out well I don't judge myself for needing more rest so that helps like 
mm-hmm. judgment is just like an extra layer of feeling that's going to weigh the whole thing down. But I started asking myself, you know, the first week I was like, oh, I feel kind of feel pretty off. I don't really know. That's the funny thing. It doesn't seem to matter how many times I go through adversity and trauma. There's always this space where I'm like not understanding my own experience or not understanding right away what I need to do. Sometimes it just takes a while to tune into what I need to do for myself. Like, oh, this is depression. Oh, yeah, this is depression. I got to execute emergency protocols, you know? Full parachute A. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have very clear parachutes. You know, in winter, it's doing outdoors activities, skating and skiing. uh, So you try to, like, push through that tiredness to get out, and then that helps? Yeah. Once you're out? That can help. So what I've been doing lately, this was different. I found that, like, although physical movement is important in changing our states, it, it didn't seem to do the job. Like, I... There's certain kinds of yoga I do that works with the vagus nerve and stimulates the vagus nerve in terms of like say chest opening postures. Really, we know that in depression, posture curls, we constrict, mm. we close, our body closes mm-hmm. like a turtle. So I very deliberately mo- use movement to open my body and do the opposite. So mm. that's one thing I do very deliberately through yoga. Um, but then I ask myself, you know, what is it that I don't want to feel or what is it that I'm avoiding feeling? And I've made mm-hmm. specific mm-hmm. time to sit and journal and feel those emotions. And I've, I found that that was actually quite helpful. Okay. So like sometimes there are things emotionally that come up that do need to be indulged and felt because they have the wisdom that will take us through. And other times it's like based on an old mechanism of coping, but it actually isn't quite the answer. It's like, it's kind of like that parts work thing. Like there's this little piece that was like wounded a long time ago or like at some other point and it's trying to protect us by bringing up this mechanism in the, in the present, Mm -hmm. but actually that mechanism isn't the best. Like the shutdown response is actually like, yes, thank you for coming up, trying to protect me. I get Mm -hmm. what you're here for. I honor you, but that's not you know, the best mechanism, like maybe it was when I was five and I had no other option, Mm -hmm. but now I have, you know, yoga option, Mm -hmm. you know, operation open chest. (laughs) (laughs) I have whatever, like I have these other things and those would actually be superior to dealing with this. Yeah. I mean, what keeps, what keeps trauma in place is avoidance, Mm -hmm. right? It's very clearly avoidance is what keeps the traumatic responses in place but the trick is that we need to feel safe enough to feel the feelings that we're avoiding and so earlier on in my life I didn't have any knowledge of I didn't understand what I was experiencing or how depression connected to trauma and I didn't know what to do but now it's much later on in life and I've practiced many times right and I'm very clear um well not as I could be clearer but I'm more clear you know, I did try, like, the just being tired, and I'm like, I don't think this is going to stop. Like, for me, depression is like an emergency sign. It's like, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. I feel depressed. <laughs> emergency protocols now, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I, I'm like, I let the rest happen, but then it's better if I'm resting because I spent time feeling. If yes. I spent time feeling, 
and being in my body and stopping the avoidance, no judgment on myself for avoiding something so difficult to, f- that, to feel what's difficult. But yes. if I'm exhausted from that, then if I want to sleep for hours, great. Well, that's integrative sleep. Yes, right? yes. No, that's so, that's so perfect. So the depression really is about what we would call depression, which is sort of this pathological adaptive mechanism, is the avoidance mechanism. I think it's it can the, be that. It's the tune out. It's the shutdown tune out. Yeah. And it's there for very good reason. We're not saying like, no okay, okay, so I shouldn't pathologize it. I sort of just did, but I shouldn't pathologize it because it's there as a survival mechanism. If something is so overwhelming that you have to tune it out, mm-hmm. then you should. But if you're aware enough to say, hey, I'm on to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're trying to tune me out. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're there to protect me, but I don't quite need that level of protection because I have some of these other ways that I can move into feeling. Mm -hmm. And then you move, you turn toward the feeling um, and kind of like start to open in a way that is not, you know, obviously maybe not all at once, but like starting to bring it in. and, And then you can kind of communicate to your depression that like, you know, hey, we don't have to do this all at once. We don't have to completely overwhelm and shut down. We can, like, just do this in a way that's manageable. Yeah. Yeah, it's very intuitive, right? So that Mm -hmm. process for me looked like um, I put three sticky notes on my desk. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) One sticky note said, uh, you know, forgive. What are you avoiding feeling? And I can't remember what the third one is right now. But I sat with my journal and I looked at the sticky notes and I started writing and I didn't write very long before I located the emotion in my body. And then I just gave myself space and intuitively, you know, I, I used some rhythmic tapping to regulate the nervous system, um, which is reminiscent of, you know, possibly like EMDR therapy. And then I had a feeling that I wanted to dance and I, I intuitively connected to butterfly medicine, which... That's a whole other story to talk about what butterfly medicine is, but I connected to the idea, the imagery of a, of, a, of a butterfly, and as I danced through the emotion, I allowed myself to move like a butterfly, like what mm-hmm. I felt that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And to free myself from the emotion. It was very much this experience of thinking of freedom and feeling myself flying away from the emotion. Not, not to avoid it, but just like spending time with it until I really could like... Till it was dissolved. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It was a very intuitive process. But years ago, and some of the feelings would have been, I did not have the skill to do this on my own. Yeah. It would be way too much, right? That's mm-hmm. been a very much a lot of practice to be able to do this on my own. And I can say that I don't think I'm that good at it yet. You know, I think I have a lot more practice to do in terms of getting good at sitting with these difficult feelings that are connected to depression. Yeah, it's something I, I, I'm aware that I need to keep practicing and I need to keep using my emergency protocols faster, right? I spent a whole week before I was like... Before you I tuned need, in. Yeah. Hey, this is the, the signal. Yeah, I got to do something. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's interesting because it's like the the mechanism is like do nothing. It's immobilization. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's freeze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's too much. I can't free, I can't run, I can't fight, um, I yeah. can shut down. 
It's a freeze That was response. basically my suspicion that depression was essentially the freeze mm-hmm. response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to figure out how it's different than just a general defense. Like the numb out, tune out. Well, Gordon talks about numb out, tune out, back out. Like if something is too overwhelming, too vulnerable, too wounding to look at, we numb it out. We tune it out, attention scatters, can't look at it, can't face it directly. We back out of relationship. Mm-hmm. Like just, you know, mm-hmm. I hate you, get away from me, yeah. fleeing from the relationship. Now I'm out, tune up, back out. So, like, is, de- is depression just a defense? Or is it more than that? Is defense part of depression, or is depression just a defense? Okay, well... Is it the yeah, numb well, that's all avoidance. Those are all techniques of avoiding feeling, not in a judgmental way, but like survival way. Yeah, mm-hmm. like we're just trying to survive. So with mm-hmm. compassion, if how we're trying to survive is by numbing or by um, avoiding or shutting down, right? It's just about getting that moment of awareness of like something's off here. I need to execute emergency protocols. Hopefully, I have some. Right? And then there's all the years one might spend even learning that. That could take a long time if we don't have people to teach us mm-hmm. to notice the sign of something's wrong. I need to do something about it. But the thing that I like about thinking of depression in this way is that then we don't have to be scared of depression. No, yeah, exactly. It's just doing a job. It, of course, yes. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. That and, and I find that is probably kind of empowering yeah it's empowering and and also to be kind to myself and to others knowing that the work of stopping the avoidance and the numbing that's hard work mm-hmm. right and to actually sit with that over the difficult feeling that's sitting you know that depression's trying to cover up yes you know yes. depression is a funny thing because sometimes you can stop crying but sometimes this is my experience crying doesn't like there's crying because crying and then there's crying that's healing. Yes. I'm feeling the feeling. Yes, so exactly. crying for weeks in my 20s and thinking... Non-adaptive. Like, yeah, there was not... Like, I didn't know why I was crying. I had no idea what was going on with me. I just knew I felt horrific. And I did not know what to do about it. And I didn't know what was wrong. My mom kept asking me, what's wrong? And I, I could not say what it was about. I had no idea. Right? Mm-hmm. That's very different than... I went through an adversity recently... Oh, I noticed depressive symptoms. Oh, execute emergency protocols. It's a lot of awareness. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a big difference between the different kinds of crying. Oh, yes. Yeah, Yeah, completely. Completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's what I think, you know, sadness gets pathologized when sadness is actually the way through, but it's like that true sadness where you feel Mm -hmm. and I guess that other sadness is like where you're sort of caught in a loop and often I think of that other sadness as like I can easily make sense of it in terms of like the sort of like panic crying sort of stuff Mm -hmm. because my alarm system is very like I'm very high alarm Mm -hmm. I'm a high alarm person so I've been there Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've been in the panic crying state yeah but the other, I, I, I've never been in like a crying for weeks, but not an adaptive cry. Like I, I, 
I know the power of the adaptive cry mm-hmm. going into it and just like letting the nervous system drain and release. Yeah. And then just being like, oh, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm relieved now. Thank yeah. you. I can move on. Totally. <laughs> and it literally takes like sometimes two minutes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's 20 minutes, but it's not long. Like I wouldn't cry for, I, I can't picture sustaining crying for much longer than that. Mm-hmm. How does one cry for weeks or days? It was so long. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think for me, I mean, the, the, my list of emergency protocols is quite long and then there's like daily protocols. So I know that something that I've noticed is that in yoga, I regularly process emotions, but I don't necessarily know what they're about. Just the active movement is releasing things and I just let it be released. Even if I don't know what the content is. That yeah, sure. To. Don't need to know. But yeah, but that it's the regular maintenance, I think, of the movement and working with, with the vagus nerve, that that is releasing. It's just maintenance. It's just not letting it accumulate. What kind of yoga is it that works with the vagus nerve specifically? Or um, Maybe well, there's multiple kinds or something, but what is it that you do? Oh, yeah. Well, anything. So, so we have to remember that the stress response fundamentally constricts our body. Right. Yes. So, so it, research tells us that in depression, we often our posture collapses, like yes. the head falls forward, sp- rounds. But we think of like an animal being attacked, a turtle, turtle getting attacked, they just hide in their shell, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And they are they are going, uh, they're they're using their spine to protect their soft body. Mm-hmm. In a sense, most animals will, and humans, everyone. So, uh, as you might know from polyvagal theory um when we con- when we contract and constrict our bodies that we're going into a dorsal dorsal <laughs> <laughs> or, as i have like to say dorsal face dorsal face <laughs> yeah shut off social communication right on the face and constrict our body so in order protect to- the organs protect yeah totally. yeah vital like full-on survival so any pose, any movement that helps you do the opposite and mm. open, mm-hmm. right? So there's so many poses in yoga. Pretty much any yoga would probably help with that. Yeah, twisting poses, but in, but in particular chest openers. There are mm-hmm. chest openers that are, they are so powerful. Like the feeling that I experience in my body um, from doing really long, intense chest openers like it completely transforms my mood Mm. yeah from doing really intense chest openers um so and there's this one class i do on a pretty regular basis it's called from heartache heartbreak to wholeness or something like that and it's all chest openers Mm. right and and i'm quite sure the reason why it's working is because it's stimulating the vagus nerve which runs all the way down your Where front. doesn't it run? <laughs> yeah, yeah, everywhere. Right? Yeah, from the 10th cranial nerve, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so, anyways, those are some observations that I've had about depression. Mm. So, sometimes, if I'm feeling off, it's like some sunshine and some gliding, some skiing, right? How do you push through the hump of resistance? Practice. I mean, there are times, I mean, it's very funny. Sometimes I put on my snow clothes and I might wear my snow clothes inside all day. (laughs) Just dressed for skiing, but I'm not going anywhere. I've had times where it's taken me three days, but then eventually I break through and I'm rewiring my brain. If it took me three days, 
and I finally go skiing on the third day. Then I go skiing, and I'm like, wow, I feel really better. I do this? I should have done this three days ago. So now the resistance is less. It could be an hour. Yeah. It it doesn't last as long because I've had to, over time, I've trained my brain to know, oh, I feel bad, and then I do this, I feel better, and I don't have to wait to feel better. Mm -hmm. I can just do that now. I can do the meditation. I can uh, go for a walk. I can go skiing. I can, you know, all the things. Yeah. Nature never fails. It's just getting out. Oh my gosh, nature is so healing. It's like my, it's my go-to. I just wish I lived somewhere where I could ski year-round. <laughs> <laughs> I know most people don't feel similarly. Ski for year-round winter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just have to move around, I don't know. But um, yeah, so those are, those are some, some things that I've, I've noticed about, about depression. I guess is how much opening the body makes such a huge difference. And where do you think the di- like um distinguishment is between like quote unquote clinical depression, like where there's some level of severity that is next level. We're just saying like you know these helpful things like that's not realistic for that person who can't get out of bed or something, you know, like well, I really question that. I really question that. I mean, part of, you know, part of, of, of recovery is like one changing what success looks like. So success looked like, used to look like I get up, I go to work, I work, I do the things, whatever I make. I do a million things. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then when that level of depression hits, um, it's more like I brush my teeth today. Let's notice what worked. Right, so there's supposed to be this real change of expectation and and a recognition of what's working is very important when that comes, and working from there from those places. But what if instead of being medicated, people were taught, you know, chest opening exercises, mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. What if you had a buddy to go for that ten minute walk or? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what if you developed your emergency protocols and started practicing them? Knowing that, you know, maybe you can, like, maybe success is, like, I did one of my emergency protocol things for one minute today. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. every minute you can do helps, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I yeah. believe it really helps. But but I don't know how common of approach that is Yeah, for people that are severely depressed. It's like, oh, you're that depressed? take your medication and I can't be totally anti-medication because if you believe it works it will work to some degree right yeah so there's that factor of it but I think that people there are things that are so wildly effective in treating depression such as movement exercise dance art meditation yoga and and those things what if those things were considered first it's called social prescribing. In the UK, mm. medication is the fifth step. Mm. They prescribe mm-hmm. non-pharmacological treatments before they go to pharmacological treatments. And they prescribe things like, you know, could be exercise, gym pass, art class. They prescribe those things first before you get medication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they call it social prescribing. So, Well, I love, like, I love the empowering aspect of, like, hey, you alone can go and do something and have some agency. But at the end of the day, we're we're relational beings. And, like, I think that 
even if people don't want to acknowledge it, that there is some sort of um, attachment, you know, unmet need or violation or trauma, or there, like there was something that happened in terms of that person's attachment needs or development. And that would that led to depression? that would that would cause that right like mm. I mean I don't want to like <laughs> I don't want to be so fundamentalist that I say like oh it's always this one thing but like okay. the be all and end all is kind of relationships mm. and so if relationships were highly involved in creating the problem mm-hmm. and they're also yeah. like hugely the answer yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's nice to say to someone like, here's something within your power that you can do. Mm-hmm. Like these, have these tools or whatever. But yeah. what about like the broken relationships mm-hmm. or what about, I, I mean, we're not like in, in charge of finding someone who can meet our needs relationally mm-hmm. and like have a relationship that's reciprocal. Cause like you can want that and not find it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do the healing work for the broken relationships that happened in the past. Um, I'm just like, sometimes I worry about the like buzziness and not to like say that that's not important, but like going to a doctor, getting this prescription, like, hey, do these things. And not that they're not like powerful and important, but also like, what about the healing work that needs to happen within your relationships? What about... You know the holistic perspective, yeah, of of what you know what what does emergency protocols look like holistically? You know, like what are the protocols? What are healing protocols, right? Mm-hmm. And their and their fullness, right? That it can be social supports and problem. You know, is 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 important. You know, like what's that expression? Regulated nervous systems make regulated nervous systems, mm. right? So connecting to all the different kinds of support in a way that you can. If you're someone who's like, I can't, I'm so depressed, I can't get out of bed. It has to be very small steps. And not, because I, I think it's like, there's so much judgment and stigma we put on ourselves, plus society. But that extra weight, like, that is dep- that that adds so much to depression. Yeah, yeah. And we need to take those weights off as much as we can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then also have the range of support and, and empowering ourselves and others. What are you drawn to? If this is like the cookbook of, of recovery, which one do you feel drawn to right now and empowering people to make choices? Like they used to call depression, uh, in my psych, in my psych degree, they would talk about depression as being, um, uh, like endogenous or mm. external or extraneous. I can't remember. So that you would either be depressed because external thing events happen to you, or because your neurochemicals were messed up. And see, like I endogenous depression is yeah. within you. It's not because anything happened. It's just because you somehow are. Yeah, broken. you had this chemical imbalance. Yeah, yeah. and you're broken. And it's like, well, your your brain can't. No, I hate that. I hate <laughs> this. I have a chemical imbalance. Yeah, it's it's. Your chem- brain chemistry is a reflection of your relationships and your environment. Mm-hmm. It's so disempowering. Well, and just like re- it's reductionistic. Mm-hmm. You have a brain. No, <laughs> like people don't just have random chemical imbalances. Like that's 
I don't know. That, that makes that makes no sense to me. I think there's a lot more work to be done on understanding that. I think that there is this phase. I'm thinking of like 90s psychology mm-hmm. from the 90s where it's like we are sure it is the chemical imbalance that causes mental illness. Because we looked at the chemicals <laughs> and they were out of balance. Well, yeah, they are because their relationships were out of, you know, yeah. the attachment needs weren't met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's so much more work to be done in understanding how all of that works. And in the meantime, what's important when it comes to depression is empowering ourselves and taking away the judgment and stigma as much as we can because recovery is hard, and but we need to make it easier with kindness and compassion yeah. for ourselves. Well, that's what the chemical imbalance equation did. It took all the blame and stigma away. It's just a chemical imbalance. Like hmm. any other thing. Hmm. It's like, hey, you could have randomly ended up with disease X hmm. or condition Y. I hadn't thought of it like that. And that's that. what everybody, that's how people see health conditions. Manifested health conditions. They don't. Oh, I mean, they luck, don't, luck of the draw. Complete luck of the draw. Oh, you yeah. just have a thing. You, oh, whoops, oh, you just end up with cancer. Yeah. Had nothing to do with, you know. Your lifestyle. The issues. Well, the not, even li- not even lifestyle so much. Like, to me, that's, like, a, of course, a part of it. But, mm. like, I think the bigger thing more than anything is always going to be your attachment relationship. So, mm. you know, I mean, in shamanism, they talk about lack of forgiveness being stored in the body. You no. don't do your forgiveness work. It manifests as cancer. Um, that sort of thing, right? Like there's different frameworks. There's like the TCM, traditional Chinese medicine way of looking at things. There's, you know, so many different things, but at the end of the day, it kind of boils down to, um, well, I mean, Gordon talks about this, like how cancer is undifferentiated cells, not having their own cell wall, Mm. proper cell boundary, you know, like there was this, um, process of fusion, Right, and if you look in the relationships, I get it's mimicking. It's yeah, I the cells are mimicking what's happened in life, the events of life. Yeah, lack of like, boundaries, lack of boundaries. Exactly, like you have these two agendas. Exactly, you have these two agendas. You have attachment, which is fusion, and then you have differentiation. And attachment needs must come, must be met first, and then differentiation is more of the luxury. And if fusion is, if if you only have to be fused in order to survive, mm-hmm. then it's like this fusion state. Mm-hmm. And that just continues to replicate as opposed to forming its own cell wall, integration, healthy boundaries, all right. of that. Right? Like, of course it has to do with your physical is going to reflect your... Emotional. Emotional and environmental state, yeah. right? And so you don't... And I mean, you know that just from the ACE studies. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, there's mm-hmm. nothing that's more descriptive. I don't know how to say that. But, like, there's nothing that's you could pin down more as, like, the cause of diseases. Than more adversity? Than anything else than yeah. adversity. Yeah. Like, that's the the highest percentage of... Unresolved, of a, of a thing. unhealed adversity. Exactly. Yeah. Like, if you say heart disease or something... What is it like such a disproportionate amount that is like cholesterol from your diet or whatever, Mm -hmm. but like this much larger probability is that you had all these unresolved traumas or sorry that just that you experienced them. 
And then, the, you know, there's this probability that they're unresolved. Yeah. Right? Because many people will resolve them and won't manifest mm-hmm. a condition. Yeah. But just the fact that you experience them puts you in this risk category that is so much higher than any other lifestyle risk category. So that just says a lot. It says so much, right? Yeah. It, 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 that it, there aren't these accidents, that the physical body is this reflection of your states and all of that. Mm-hmm. I'm just having this really intense, trippy moment. <laughs> Holy smokes. I'm having like an undone moment. Ooh. Yeah, it's like, wow. Wow. There's so many things well, okay. to know. I couldn't have even come up with the, all of these questions, but thank you for taking four hours to like <laughs> just, you know, e- unpack every little piece. How I think of him is like, you know, those giant, you know, the Bob Marley's face yeah. that are made of, they're comprised of every tiny little oh, yes. tile that yes, has yes. a whole and complete the synthesis of like thing in it. Yeah. It's a mosaic. Yeah, yeah. And. Gordon is the big picture. He he says, look at Barb Marley. It's yeah. ever so clear. Here's Barb Marley. Let's talk about Barb, Mar- Bob Marley for a while. Components. And then he dives into every single tile mm-hmm. and says, look at the sunset. Look at the water. Look at the whatever. Oh, look, here's, this one's a trumpet. Oh, oh that's, you know, one hair on Bob Marley's, you know, eyebrow. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about that for five minutes. And then let's talk about this. And let's talk about, and he like, <laughs> like detailed unpacking of every mm-hmm. single tile in the mosaic without losing sight of it. The fact that it's Bob Marley's face the entire time. Mm-hmm. Like that's his gift. Well, okay. I, I, so I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> no, 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 no. Why, why don't, what if, okay. Based on your mm-hmm. conversations, what if you sticky note what you know? Ah. Uh, sticky note what you know. Uh-huh, then, uh-huh. Or what I suspect, at least. What you suspect, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't I know if I know be, for sure. I think that would be helpful, because right now you're sitting in conversations. Mm-hmm. You have your knowing in, com- and if, in this process, anyways, mm-hmm. in your lived experience, and in, across a few conversations as part of this project. And if you sticky-noted what you knew, or what you think you know, I have a feeling, I think there would be value in that. Like, it would help, that would help synthesize or mm-hmm. collate what you, your tiles? You have tiles right now. Yeah, and you could, if you could. They're take... like little blobs of paint. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but, okay, but if you, but you could like you could you can start to make a face with the blobs, you know, and putting them together. I I think there's something there. Yeah, like I've kind of heard you say in this conversation that, um, you know, the for example, the difference between. Um, the panic crying yep. and the healing crying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is something that's come up a few times. Um, what else did I hear you say? Just like whether it's defenses or like whether defenses are part of depression and it's bigger or depression is just the defense. That's what I'm trying to also figure out. What's the difference? Like, I think it is defensive. It's protecting you. No, I know it's defensive, but I just mean like everybody has defenses. Uh-huh. We have the numb out, tune out, back out response. Yeah. We kind of like are meant to have them come up as needed, you know, come up, come out, mm-hmm. you know. Is depression just simply one of those defenses? Is it the, mainly the numb out? Uh-huh. Is it the numb out, but, but chronic? Is it just, is it, is that all it is? Chronic numb out? 
or is chronic numb out one little aspect of depression which is much larger okay what well, well, i'm just thinking like so okay yes depression is a chronic numb out don't feel or a loop of feeling like mm-hmm. the crying that doesn't get you anywhere mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you're like but it's also in your numb you're doing all that from adversity I don't know. I can't imagine what's bigger than that. That's already pretty big. Well, I guess it's just that there's multiple components. Like the NEMO defense is one that's chronic is one component. Mm-hmm. And then there's like these other components because they're numb- numbing out is one aspect. But there's these sort of other kind of like pressing down mechanisms that are sort of like creating the chronic fatigue kind of stuff. And Well, I guess there's like... Okay, yeah, I guess you could probably break down depression. There's also all of the stigma and judgment and shame of it. That I think that's worth noting, all of those things that come along with depression for a mm-hmm. lot of folks. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think your quest is worthy mm-hmm. and noble. It's also like two different paradigms, right? Everybody's using the depression, which is like, that lingo and all of that comes from the disorder model. Mm-hmm. It's a different paradigm. So I'm like bringing two different paradigms together. But like it's definitely helping me understand by having these conversations, especially the insightful conversations mm-hmm. where we can unpack, like really unpack. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I, I'm, I had the realization just the other day through one of these insightful conversations that... I think I had depression for a while. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I ever, I didn't think I did, but I think I do. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was, I just thought it was fatigue. I thought it was like a sleeping issue that I had in my first year of university Mm -hmm. as well, just like you. Okay, but have you ever thought about why? Have you thought about why the sleeping comes in the first year of university? Well, I think now this is, of course, you know, I've, I've recently been thinking about this for myself. Yeah, for, like how I would think now. Of course, I didn't have this insight remotely at the time, but I think now it was. I was, oh, geez. So, in the past. I was able to sort of like just get a little rush of alarm. My alarm system would go like, oh, shoot, there's this thing to do. Must perform. And then I could get this little burst of energy and just get it done and get like this highly satisfying grade. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you did the thing and you got 100%. Mm -hmm. And so then I would get like that rush of dopamine. Mm -hmm. And then in university, it just didn't work that way. So, like, there was no rushes of dopamine. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't just, like, say, oh, you know, get alarmed, do all this studying, then go write the midterm and, like, succeed. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't just, like, do that. So there was, like, no dopamine <laughs> in the normal ways. <laughs> right, how you knew, the ways that you knew. But there's there's more to this. This is an interesting thing to unpack because like I had 
come back from Peru. I went on a trip to Peru. It was my very first time. I never went anywhere. And I came back really late, and I'd been accepted to university, and I came back, like, at the near the end of August, and I was the last, one of the last people to choose the classes, and all the classes that were left were starting at 8 a.m., oh. and I knew that that wasn't going to be good. Yeah. Um, I was already having these sort of, like, pendulum swinging, like, where I would, like, stay up super late and then crash and sleep for, like, 13 hours, mm-hmm. just, like, really unhealthy sleep stuff it was I think it was just because of like my high alarm yeah sort of state like where I would just be like if there was something that needed to be done I would just do it all at the last minute like oh no shoot I need to do this thing and then I'd like stay up an excessive amount of time like even an Mm all-nighter I'd pull an all-nighter I'd do what the thing was that needed to be done and then I'd completely crash yeah yeah and then I like wouldn't be able to get out of bed for 13 hours yeah so I had this, like, really unhealthy pattern, which is, like, totally a reflection of the mania and trauma and stuff that I experienced with my family mm-hmm. of origin. But um, the 8 a.m. thing was, like, a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. But, like, I couldn't get out of bed. I used to tell my sister to spray me in the face with cold water. Mm-hmm. I would set my alarm at 4.30 in the morning. The neighbors were all complaining, like, why is this alarm going off? I couldn't even <laughs> wake up to shut it off. Oh. Then my sister would eventually wake up like a few hours later. She would yeah. spray me in the face with cold water. <laughs> it still wouldn't your, work. Your sister, that's very sweet of her. She yeah. was willing to yeah. torture me yeah. on my behalf uh, as per my request. And I just, I couldn't move. I couldn't get up. Mm-hmm. It was not up. Like, there's got to be more to it. Actually, do you have some insight on it? Well, for me, I was like counting down the days till I left my abusive situation um with my family and to me it makes sense that like in survival mode I didn't have time even though I was like chronically depressed through all of those years like living with my family I was still functional enough to get good grades in in arts and writing and certain you know certain classes just not math but anyways I could still get good grades. I could hold on a part-time job. I still, like, relatively functional in high school. And then I get to first-year university, and I completely just crashed. But to me, it makes so much sense from a trauma response because it's like I'm now away from the danger. But I had left the year earlier. I left in, in the summer of grade 11. Like, that does make sense. But I'd already been gone for over a year. So why did it come like a whole year late? Yeah, a whole year late. Uh Or not late, but just later. Yeah, Yeah, like I can understand you get out of this extremely stressful environment. And then you crash. You you just crash because you finally have these like kind of four walls of safety where nobody's going to come in and threaten you. Yeah. And then boom. But like I didn't have that response in high school. Maybe. I guess I guess there wasn't the safety. Yeah, but I was still I was still like moving from place to place and like delayed onset PTSD is about appears and so if we're connecting depression to trauma and delayed onset PTSD is connected to safety, so that's the reason why it can be twenty years down the road from an event and now people are having all the PTSD symptoms. Yeah. So for you, maybe there was something safe. You know feeling. what? Actually, there wasn't the safety in grade 12. I was still, I was moving around in other people's houses. Like, I was the roommate. 
Yeah. Or like I was, it was like not sudden, quite safe. But then you were with your sister and I bet you felt safe with your sister. Yeah. And like we had our own place. I was sort of like the alpha in that domain. I wasn't just like, oh, let me live with you as your roommate kind mm-hmm. of situation where I had to like, you know, couldn't just let it all hang out. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it must've been, it must've just been the safety. Like the safety is finally here and crash implode. Yeah. I, I really feel like that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that depression, though, or is that just, like, a collapse, which is actually different? Like, I've been well, holding this together for so long, and that collapse is actually, like, restorative. Not just a defense, like, but just, like, needing to happen as, as rest needs to happen. Well... Isn't just the word depression completely unhelpful because it's not trauma informed? If we're talking about the nervous system, you know. Exactly, wrong paradigm. Fuck <laughs> a DSM. <laughs> yeah, if we're talking about the nervous system and we're talking about freeze, um, you know, collapse, uh, constriction that mm-hmm. happens through adverse experiences, and people have given all of that stuff to shut down. The numbing, they call it depression. Yeah. Right? But, I mean, it can also show up as addictions, like on the numbing side. But yeah. they call it depression. It's just maybe, an, it's a word that we shouldn't keep using. Mm-hmm. Or, if we're going to keep using it, we need to know that it's not endogenous depression. It's yeah. trauma depression. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes. Trauma-informed depression. I don't know. I don't know what the correct term is, but... You know, it's a dorsal response. Yes. And yet some people will say like, oh, I didn't have any trauma. Just happened to, just happened to have this thing. And it's like, oh, no, 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 I don't think so. <laughs> well, for sure. We, we I can, would beg to differ. We can be aware of adversity for a long time and not feel it. Right? It can be a long time before we feel it. So for me, um, whether it was math trauma or, you know, I had the experience of being suffocated at one point uh, during my childhood... I knew about those things for decades before I actually felt But them. I mean, like, where people don't know about it. The def- cause well, the they def- don't remember. They don't remember. They don't acknowledge. Their defense is protecting them from looking at it mm-hmm. because they need those relationships. And if you look at, hey, that person might not have met my need, mm-hmm. that would actually threaten what need I have now is this relationship with them. Yeah. Right. I can't blame you for this thing you didn't do for me. Or right. did do that wasn't... That hurt me. That hurt me. That I forget or yes. don't acknowledge. Because or... let's face it, like, parents in this society, like, what chance did they really have <sighs> being given the education, like, hey, put your kid in time out or whatever, something like that. Well, that's, you know... Well, that's, that's the not an- going to be good for the nervous system. <laughs> well, that's the answer to not beating them. Yeah, exactly. But we need a new answer. It's but holy crap, like that's just, you know, a recipe for depression. Yeah. Yeah, the the disconnection, the breaking of attach attachment or attachment ruptures. Exactly. Whereas people's story is like, well, hey, I didn't have this trauma. Yeah. They don't see it. They don't it see their own trauma. Exactly. Cuz yeah, we don't have a collective shared definition of what trauma is. Yeah. Well, not only that, but like they have instincts within them to actually defend them from seeing it. Trauma bonding. Is that what it's called? Is that what is that some other way of saying it? Well, when somebody hurts you and then you defend them from, 
you know, they've hurt you in the past or they're continuing to hurt you and you defend them, that is like Stockholm, that's part of Stockholm okay. syndrome and trauma bonding. But even, according but, to Judith but not Herman. even quite, not even quite that extent. Cause that's like a really obvious hurt. But I mean, like, where you need your parents to survive because that's where you're getting your attachment needs met. Yeah. And they're doing something that you don't you don't even see it as hurting. Because sure. they've told you. You it's need not... to learn how to regulate yourself or whatever. whatever. Yeah, like... You're going to go on a timeout in the corner and sit down and think about what you did. Yeah. Or whatever, right? And the violence. child never, ever, ever sees it as... This is affecting my development. Of course not. Like, like how would they? <laughs> like in, in like in Portuguese culture, like physical punishment is so part of the culture that people regularly tell their trauma stories and laugh about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, kids are still getting hit at school. Mm, wow. You know. Wow. So, um, yeah, people just don't know. Yeah. how this stuff impacts them exactly they don't know how it impacts them they're mm-hmm. like oh, i had a great like it's like go to any gamer mate workshop mm. oh i had a great childhood and you just like two seconds <laughs> into it it's like you listen to someone and it's like oh wow their trauma is just like ever so evident right yeah or maybe and with some stories it's not but guaranteed if you could see what happened there there's something something happened or didn't happen <sighs> okay but back to the role of attachment mm-hmm. right i wonder if the reason why in the case of portuguese people either they're super in denial of their trauma which could very possibly be true you know when you look at like a society that's gone through fascism for decades yeah and then of course you're in a traumatic system and a traumatic system make people pass on their pain Right? And more violence. So then there's like all the domestic violence and that kind of thing and addictions and stuff. But I wonder, because they're an attachment-based culture, if the attachment aspect of the culture doesn't regulate the trauma somehow. And that's why they're like... And I've always wondered. They just they just think, like when I start talking about trauma, they just think I'm so weird and depressed, weirdo. <laughs> yes, it probably does balance in, in a sort of scale type of way, I'm sure. I it, think there's some, because, you know, what's traumatic sense. is being alone with your pain, Gabor says. Yes. Right? Yeah, and yeah. so they're not alone with their pain. Somebody dies, they have, like, a three-day ceremony. Yeah. Oh, 100%. You know what I mean? 100%. So, you know, like, you need your potatoes pulled, fuck, the whole community shows up to help you do the job. Totally. So, totally. So it's like you're not alone. So even though there's this violence and trauma in that society, they're also super connected yes yes and so maybe that's the reason why they don't understand me talking about trauma because like i don't live in an attachment culture yeah they live in attachment culture i do not yeah and so it's like in a from in an individualistic society all the trauma just hits you like exponentially yes yes totally true totally true so I wonder, so is there more depression in individualistic societies? Yes, 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 100%. Somebody's done that research, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't even think, they don't, they don't, you don't need to do, <laughs> you don't need to do research about it. <laughs> it's obvious, self-evident. I don't know how much self-evident research you need to do. Like, of, of course, of course. Yeah. Alone of course. with your trauma. Alone with your trauma is the worst, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, separation-based punishment, that is like the most, that is at 
striking to the very core of what your fundamental needs are. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it's brutal. Yeah, it's just like they, yeah, we need new answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for parent, sure. Parent licenses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that doesn't really match up with like the libertarian ways. <laughs> What does that mean? Oh, um, if I'm, I'm like, yeah, parents need licenses. Or they need training. You're pregnant? You're, you oh. need training. <laughs> but if you had to be a license to get a license to be a parent, that doesn't really line up with, like, libertarian politics. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah, no, it would never work anyway. Yeah, it's not, it's not possible. Yeah. But. That's okay. Yeah. We, that's why we have a lot of work to do, Eugenia. Yeah. But I don't even say it from a place of, like, blame or something. I'm just saying that... It, more matter-of-factly, like, it's oh. not by accident that people just have depression. Like, whoops, you have this thing. Like, no. It's not by accident that we have anything. No, our nervous system's doing a job. Exactly. It's always talking to us, but we have to learn how to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, but I really appreciated what you said earlier around um, what chance did the parents have. Exactly. That, that Eugenia, That's exactly is it. brilliant. Parents need to hear that. As soon as they learn about trauma-informed stuff, then they freak out, and it's a horrible experience for them. Like, wow, I really hurt my kids. But if they understand it intergenerationally... Exactly. That is And culturally, yeah. And culturally. In the context of culture. Yeah. yeah then it's like, it's, it's, it's better. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, like, if you did, uh, you know, meet your child's needs kind of thing, then you've, like, somehow swam against the grain like against the yeah you've swam upstream like Mm -hmm. against culture basically yeah Mm -hmm. toxic culture yeah although i know people are overusing that word but anyways it's true though andy it's true all right, my friends. That's probably a good place to wrap up. Yeah, let's talks to culture. That. My job. <laughs> <laughs> we done. We done. Awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs>